the midnight hour brings you. Raging Donald fans go berserk on the big house. Henry VIII marries Cleves for six months. And toe dancing woman clubbed by ex-husband's proxy. And later in the program, Katie Price tells us how she makes millions from staring at elephants. Those are the headlines. Shit me in the head. News bang. Squeezing the truth out of a stone of ignorance. 2021. Chaos in Washington today as a mob of disgruntled supporters of outgoing President Trump stormed the Capitol building, furious at his failure to lose the election with any grace whatsoever. Dressed in their finest tin foil hats and brandishing placards reading Stop the Steal, which they stole from Poundland, the baying crowd surged towards the home of American democracy, intent on overturning the result of a fair and free election. Eyewitnesses described scenes of Bedlam as one rioter, Chuck McTruxon from Alabama, explained, We're here to stop this socialist takeover by those darned socialists. We want our country back from these here commies. His wife, Betsy Sue, nodded in agreement. Yee-haw! We ain't gonna let them city folks steal our guns or our God-given right to be wrong about everything. The certification of Joe Biden's victory was briefly delayed as lawmakers cowered under their desks, but order was soon restored thanks to a swift response from police who fired off several rounds of common sense into the air. The mob dispersed quickly, vowing to return to their basements and complain on parley. In other news... <sighs> Henry VIII, the king who couldn't keep it in his codpiece, has been at it again. This time, he's had a go with Anne of Cleves, but she lasted just six months before being shown the chopping block. I mean, annulled. Yes, that's right. Another one bites the Tudor nament of love. The reason for this royal U-turn? Well, according to our insider at court, Sir Cockalot, she didn't excite him like his previous wives. She was German and smelled of sausages. Ouch! Anne will now return to her homeland with a nice settlement and a lifetime supply of lootfisk. Meanwhile, His Majesty will continue his search for a wife who can both bear him a son and double as a cheese platter. But Fatty! 1994. A chilling tale from the world of figure skating. 1994, the year Tonya Harding's ex-husband decided to spice up his life by hiring an assailant to whack two-time Olympic medalist Nancy Kerrigan on her pins with a police baton. Figure skating, a sport where athletes perform death-defying moves on ice, had never seen such drama since Sonia Heaney stole the sequins in 1908. Kerrigan, known for her graceful pirouettes and triple lutzes, was minding her own business when BAM, a goon hired by Jeff Galuli, Harding's ex, brought the cold steel of justice down on her limbs. The attack sent shockwaves through the figure skating community, which up until then had been as dull as a frozen pond. Kerrigan, made of tougher stuff than your average rink rat, went on to win several medals and was inducted into the US Figure Skating Hall of Shame. I mean fame. Meanwhile, Harding's career went into a triple salchow, off the edge of public opinion and onto reality TV infamy. The moral, keep your enemies close and your exes closer, or at least away from any blunt instruments. News bang, where the satirical meets the sceptical. Shakanaka Giles brings us the weather forecast for tomorrow, a day that will be as crisp as a freshly pressed shirt.
Tomorrow, the skies shall open their arms to a new day, embracing the land with a fresh layer of frost. A winter's morning, indeed, where every breath condenses into a visible sigh. In the heart of the capital, the city will be greeted by a bright and crisp dawn, as if the sun has put on its finest winter suit. The mercury will be dipping to around 2 degrees Celsius, so remember to wrap up warm. Across the south, the weather will be clear and bright, a perfect day for a brisk walk along the coast, but beware, the sea breeze may have a bit of a nip in it. The Midlands will see a gentle dusting of snow, as if Mother Nature has sprinkled icing sugar over the landscape. The snowfall will be light, but it's enough to give the children a chance to build their first snowmen of the year. In the north, the day will start with a frosty chill, but the sun will soon burn away the morning mist. The temperature will rise to a respectable 5 degrees, so it's a good day to get out and about. And that's all the weather. Stay warm and have a splendid Sunday. Twenty twenty one. In a day that will be in the annals of American history, the U.S. Capitol, the seat of the U.S. Congress, was attacked by riots supporting President Trump. The riots were an unsuccessful yet hallowed response to the certification of the 2020 presidential election results. The election saw record voter turnout with the U.S. Congress, composed of the House of Representatives and the Senate, at the heart of the drama. And the after-riots are being meticulously scrutinized by our correspondent Ken Shit. Ken, what's the capital's state of being? Greetings, my fellow degenerates. As we traverse the twisted timeline of 2021, let's revisit a moment that shook the very foundations of democracy itself. A moment when the seat of power, the capital, that hallowed temple of law and order, was besieged by a mob of frothing lunatics, hell-bent on overturning the will of the people. President Trump, that pompous buffoon with a bad comb-over and an even worse temperament, incited this riot in an attempt to cling to power like a desperate child clutching at a broken doll. But alas, his dreams were shattered as Joe Biden's victory was confirmed, in spite of his best efforts to subvert the democratic process. The rioters were like wild animals let loose in a zoo, wreaking havoc and destruction wherever they went. They stormed through the hallowed halls of Congress like barbarians sacking Rome, leaving chaos and carnage in their wake. But fear not, my friends. The forces of reason prevailed in the end. The capital was secured and justice was served. The rioters were rounded up like common criminals and brought to book for their treasonous acts. This is Ken Shit reminding you that no matter how dark things get, there will always be light shining through. And no matter how many misguided souls try to tear us apart, we will stand united against tyranny and oppression. The Blindest Citizen, 1953. The year is 1953, and the Asian Socialist Conference, a union of socialist political parties in Asia, has emerged. With Rangoon, Burma, as its base, the conference aspires to establish a pan-Asian multinational socialist organization 
Unshackled from European colonial powers and the Cold War superpowers, the conference has held four meetings in Rangoon and Bombay, and socialism, characterized by social ownership of production means, is at its core. Now let's hear from our correspondent Hardiman Pesto, who's been delving into the intricacies of this newfound Asian alliance. Martin, I'm with noted historian Professor Sir Lionel Haystacks. Thank you, Hardiman. And what are we discussing today, Pesto? Well, Martin, it's a trip down memory lane all the way back to 1953. Ah, yes, the year the Korean War ended. That's right, Martin. But that's not all. This was also the year that saw the birth of the Asian Socialist Conference. The what? The Asian Socialist Conference, Martin. A bold move to build a pan-Asian multinational socialist organization independent from European colonial centers and the Cold War superpowers. And where was this conference held? In Rangoon, Martin. Or as it's known now, Yangon. Pesto, are you telling me that socialism was thriving in Asia in the 1950s? That's right, Martin. The Asian Socialist Conference aimed to create a socialist utopia across the continent. And how did they propose to do this? Well, Martin, they believed in social ownership of the means of production. So in layman's terms, they wanted everyone to own everything equally? Yes, Martin, they believed in the principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. That's right, Martin. The conference held four conferences in Rangoon and Bombay. And how did these conferences go? Well, Martin, it's hard to say. There's not a lot of historical documentation available. So you're telling me that the birth of a Pan-Asian socialist organisation is shrouded in mystery? That's right, Martin. It's like a real-life version of the Da Vinci Code. Pesto, you're full of it. Yes, Martin, and it's not just me. The whole of Asia was full of it in 1953. All right, Pesto, you've had your fun. Now let's get back to the serious business of news reporting. Yes, Martin. And remember, socialism is just a redistribution of wealth, not a redistribution of your favourite colour. Pesto, you're not making this any easier. I'm just trying to make it more colourful, Martin. Pesto, thank you. Pesto Hardiman, live in Yangon. A night to see, Sir 1941. In a historic moment that echoes through the annals of democracy, President Franklin D. Roosevelt unveiled his vision of the four freedoms in his 1941 State of the Union address. These essential liberties, freedom of speech, worship, want and fear, form the cornerstone of political freedom, a concept synonymous with the absence of oppression and the realisation of empowering conditions. As we navigate the labyrinth of history and democratic societies, Political freedom remains inextricably linked to civil liberties and human rights. Today, we delve into the implications of these four freedoms with CBN's Melody Wintergreen. Melody, take it away. In the hallowed halls of Capitol Hill, a hush falls over the gathered throng as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt takes the podium. The air is thick with anticipation. The year is 1941, and America stands on the precipice of a world at war. With the eyes of the nation upon him, Roosevelt unfurls his vision of a future forged in freedom, a quartet of liberties so fundamental that their very utterance quivers with the promise of a new dawn. Freedom of speech, he proclaims, should echo through every valley and bounce off every mountaintop unshackled and untamed as the American spirit itself. Freedom of worship, he declares, must shine like a beacon across seas tempest-tossed, guiding all souls to safe harbor in a land where belief knows no bounds. 
But Roosevelt's rhetoric does not end there. Freedom from want, a clarion call for breadlines to become banquet halls where no child's cry for sustenance goes unanswered. And finally, freedom from fear, a pledge that no shadow shall darken doorsteps or dreams in a world made weary by war's whisper. As Roosevelt's four freedoms ripple through the chamber like a liberty bell tolling for justice, Senator Harold Hammerstein leans in to confide, that man doesn't just speak, he paints portraits with his words. Indeed, it seems FDR has sketched out more than policy. He's drawn up blueprints for humanity's heart. And so it is that on this day in history, an American president maps out the moral compass for a nation and perhaps even the world. As we stand sentinel over these freedoms today, let us remember that they are not just Roosevelt's legacy, but our collective lifeline to liberty. News bang, taking the holy out of Hollywood. Ryder Boff reports on the infamous attack on Nancy Kerrigan, January 6, 1994. A day that sent shockwaves through the figure skating world. Stay tuned for more. Greetings, fellow time travelers. We're off to January 6, 1994, the day Nancy Kerrigan's leg took a beating. It's January 6, 1994, and we're in Detroit, Michigan. Nancy Kerrigan, a two-time American Olympic figure skating medalist, is about to take the ice for her practice. But little does she know, she's about to be the victim of a heinous attack. As she skates, an assailant hired by Tonya Harding's ex-husband strikes her on the leg with a police baton. The ice skating world is stunned. Nancy's leg is bruised and battered, but she's not one to let a little thing like a broken leg get in the way of her dreams. She's determined to compete in the upcoming Olympics. And as for Tonya Harding, well, she's just the jealous type. You know, like that time she tried to steal my lawn gnome. Anyway, stay tuned for more on the Nancy Kerrigan attack as we follow her journey to Olympic gold. As we all know, Nancy Kerrigan went on to win a silver medal at the 1994 Winter Olympics. But what we didn't know was that she was secretly battling a terrible case of the flu. The poor thing was so weak she could barely stand up, let alone skate. But she persevered with the help of her coach and a couple of NyQuil. In the end, she proved that even with a broken leg and a severe case of the sniffles, anything is possible. And now, let's take a look at the latest figures from the World Association of Figure Skating. There's been a sharp rise in the number of skaters using crystals in their costumes. The sparkly stones are said to enhance their performances, but some say they're just trying to outshine the competition. Personally, I think it's a bit much. I mean, where will it end? Will we soon see skaters in full-length mirrored gowns, reflecting the light and confounding the judges? And finally, a little tidbit for the history books. Did you know that the word figure in figure skating originally referred to the number of figures a skater could perform in a set distance? It's true. Back in the day, skaters would perform a series of loops, spirals and turns all in the same pattern. And if they could do it well, they'd be awarded a high score. But alas, the days of the figure eight are long gone. Nowadays, it's all about the triple axle and the quadruple salchow. But I'll always have a soft spot for the good old days of figure skating. That's all the sport and whatnot for now. And in the words of Phil Collin, hello, I must be going.
1912. And now, Calamity Prenderville, our science and technology correspondent, will take us on a journey back in time to the year 1912, where a man named Alfred Wegener was causing a stir with his theory of continental drift. <laughs> Good evening, dear Newsbang viewers. It's your favourite science and technology correspondent, Calamity Prenderville, here to take you on a journey back in time to the year. Hold on to your trousers. 1912. That's right. We're going way back, before the days of the BBC Micro, before the Zec Spectrum, before the Commodore 64. We're talking about a time when the only thing people were plugging into their telephones was other telephones. What could possibly have been happening in 1912 that's worth talking about? Well, let me tell you, it's not all top hats and horse-drawn carriages. Oh no, in 1912, a man named Alfred Wegener was causing a right old stir with his theory of, uh, wait for it, uh, continental drift. That's right, folks. Alfred Wegener, a humble meteorologist from Germany, had the audacity to suggest that the continents weren't always in the places they are now. He claimed that they were once joined together in a supercontinent he called Pangaea. And then, over millions of years, they drifted apart to form the continents we know today. This all sounds like something out of a science fiction novel. But no, it's all thanks to British innovation. You see, it was a group of plucky British scientists who confirmed Wegener's theory in the 1960s. They discovered something called seafloor spreading, which proved that the continents were indeed moving. So, there you have it. The next time you're feeling down, just remember that in 1912, a man named Alfred Wegener was bold enough to suggest that the continents were moving, and thanks to British innovation, we now know that he was right. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang. Don't forget to tune in next week for more mind-boggling science and technology news. Good night. <laughs> News Bang, the voice of the people, uncensored by the people. Presenting our royal correspondent, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, who delves into the marital escapades of King Henry VIII, the fall of the Byzantine Empire, and the end of Anglo-Saxon rule in England. Nice and easy. Ah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the royal court of Sandy O'Shaughnessy. The sun may have set on the Emerald Isle, but our spirits are as bright as ever. So grab a cuppa, settle in, and let's embark on another regal escapade through the annals of time. Ah. <laughs> now let's travel back to the year 1540. King Henry VIII of England was busy tying the knot with his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. But alas, this marriage was not meant to be. Six months later, it was annulled, much to Anne's dismay and Henry's relief. It seems that love was not enough to keep these two together, and who could blame them? Ah. <laughs> With six marriages under his belt and an appetite for power that knew no bounds, old Henry was a force to be reckoned with. He initiated the English Reformation and even appointed himself Supreme Head of the Church of England. Quite a feat for a man who couldn't get an annulment from the Pope. Ah. <laughs> so many marriages, so many heartaches. 
It makes one wonder if Henry ever found true happiness, or if he was forever chasing after an elusive dream. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of dreams and heartaches, let's fast forward to 1449. Constantine XI. Palaiologos sat on the throne as the last Byzantine emperor. His reign lasted four long years before he met his fate at the hands of the Ottoman Empire during their conquest of Constantinople in 1453. The fall of this great city marked the end of an era, the end of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Byzantine Empire had once been a powerful force in the Mediterranean world, but now it lay in ruins like a shattered dream. Ah. <laughs> and finally, let's journey back even further to 1066 and Harold Godwinson, the last Anglo-Saxon King of England. His reign was short-lived indeed. He met his match at the Battle of Hastings during William the Conqueror's Norman Conquest. Harold's death signaled not only his own demise, but also that of Anglo-Saxon rule in England forevermore. Ah. <laughs> the Anglo-Saxons were once a proud people with their own language and culture. Now they were just a footnote in history, swallowed up by time like so many other civilizations before them. Ah. <laughs> it's fascinating how these historical events intertwine, how one person's actions can have such far-reaching consequences for generations to come. And yet, there is always hope for something new and beautiful to emerge from even the darkest times. Something that will make us pause and say, ah, just like we do when we take that first sip of our favorite tea or coffee on a chilly evening such as this one. Sin In the world of education, the year 1907 marked a turning point thanks to the revolutionary ideas of Italian pedagogue Maria Montessori. Her innovative Montessori method, emphasizing hands-on learning and independence, was a radical departure from traditional rote education. The method's success has seen it adopted in schools worldwide, and her rejection of conventional achievement measures has left an indelible mark on modern education. Now, to delve deeper into the life and legacy of Maria Montessori, we turn to our education correspondent, Smithsonia Moss. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Wah ho! Smithsonian Moss here, and I am pumped to bring you the latest scoop from the world of culture. But before we dive in, let's take a step back and talk about a real OG, a legend, a icon, Maria Montessori. Yes, people. I'm talking about the Italian educator who revolutionized the way we think about teaching and learning. It's like the Hamilton of education, but with better hair. But you know what the real tea is? The Montessori method was a game changer for children in the early 20th century. It was like the hashtag MeToo movement of education. It was one of the first educational methods to feature hands-on learning and independence. It's like the Captain Marvel of education, but with a better accent. So, there you have it, my people. Maria Montessori, the OG educator, the fashion icon, the feminist icon. It's like the Hunger Games of education. But instead of Katniss and PETA, we've got hands-on learning and independence. But let's be real for a second. 
The Montessori method may have been born in the early 20th century, but its impact on our culture is still felt to this day. Like, have you seen how many schools are using the Montessori method today? So, let's all raise our blue water bottles, because trust, Instagram tells us hydration is lit, and give a virtual round of applause for this brave, talented lady. As the seahorse emoji said to the mermaid emoji, You go, girl! That's all for now, but keep it tuned to Newsbang for all the latest news, both grave and trivial. Waho! Newsbang, exposing the shadow of doubt, bringing light to the truth. And now for the final roundup. The Times. Ghana's Fourth Republic begins with Jerry Rawlings as president. The Telegraph. Iran invites Gorbachev to consider Islam as alternative to communism. Ein das mantuas. The Guardian. Italian tricolor flies for first time as official flag. And finally, The Independent. Khomeini's dog predicts dissolution of Soviet bloc. That's it. Good night from me and from Newsbang, where the news comes first. Goodbye. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.